You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is David Small. Uh, David Small's latest book is Home After Dark, and uh, people will be very familiar with uh, David's previous book, Stitches. Uh, that work was memoir, and Home After Dark is a graphic novel, uh, not a memoir. Um, and kind of get in, going to get into that in the difference as far as that stuff. Um, as well, David probably has. I'm going to say 30 picture books you've done, maybe more. Close to, closer to 40. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was looking through and it's, uh, it just keeps going and it keeps going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, now some of those, I don't care if they're ever seen again, I must say there's a handful of them, but, uh, generally I'm pretty happy with my picture book work and it, it is somewhere around 40 now. Wow. And you started doing picture books uh, in the 80s, early 80s, late 70s? Yeah, I kind of fell into it accidentally. Um, I used to teach art on the university level and always thought of myself as a fine artist. You know, I was going to show in museums and stuff like that, gallery shows. Um but then when I lost my teaching position, when it was taken away during the Reagan session back in the 80s, um, I found that the only thing I could do, other than pump gas and wash windshields, was to draw. And so I put my skills to work as an illustrator. But my first goal at that time was to be an editorial artist in magazines and newspapers. And... Um, and I did that for several, quite a few years, um, and worked for some some really good places like the New Yorker, the New York Times, Washington Post, um, Playboy magazine, <laughs> uh, which you know then used to publish some good stuff. And uh, I just fell into the children's book world by writing a little story. I can't remember what it inspired it, but it was it was weird. It was um, uh, it was uh, a strange little book, but it got great reviews, and I got I started getting passed back and forth between publishers, and pretty soon I had five books under my belt before I wrote a book called Imogene's Antlers, which. Um, it was a sort of Kafka for children, but a little girl wakes up one morning with this big rack of antlers on her head without any explanation for it. And um, that got, that sort of took off in a way that was totally unexpected. And I must say, under underappreciated by me, it got on a show, a TV show called Reading Rainbow. And... I remember when my editor called up screaming into the phone that I'd gotten on Reading Rainbow. I said, what's Reading Rainbow? And she said, well, it's just the best thing besides a Caldecott for selling books. And I said, oh, that's great. What's a Caldecott? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I kind of remained in that ignorant realm for years, not really paying much attention, but having a sort of steadily building public out there and uh, so when I actually won a call to cat in 2001 it it was uh, 
It's nice. It's nice. I like that world. I still have a foot in there. Um, it, I feel like it's... I'm sorry. There's something great about, like, doing this as your fallback from teaching. Um, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, actually, um, no, that's right. I, yeah, I wasn't teaching at the time. I was, I was, they had let me go as a full-time teacher, but let me my studio when I did that first little children's book. So I was still at this college, but, um, not really a part of it, which was a big relief to me, actually. Mm -hmm. Felt like a, felt like an earthquake when I lost my job because I assumed I was going to be an academic for the rest of my life. But actually, once I got over that feeling and started getting published, I um, realized that it was a tremendous blessing because uh, I really wasn't, I was a good teacher, but I wasn't good at the, at the uh, political stuff in a university or college. I used to sit in meetings and draw people's shoes, you know, Everybody, everybody thought I was taking mad notes, but I, I wasn't even listening. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's something amazing about um, when you kind like it's that like throwing someone into the river to swim. But I mean, that's a bad analogy. But it is kind of in a way like you're kind of like you're in this position where you just kind of have to make it succeed um, and follow through with it. Yeah, you I mean he's an illustrator? Yeah. Now, yeah. where was the kind of shift into doing um, the longer form work, like like stitches? Like, had you been aware of other comic stuff uh, through your time with the picture books, kind of seeing uh, what else was out there? Not really. I've never been a comics reader, um, except for a strip I used to follow when I was really young called Pogo. Which was, uh, you know, these cute animals in a swamp down south. Uh, but it was actually a very political strip. And the politics pretty much went over my head, but I loved the play. I adored the art. And, um, but aside from that, and Mad Magazine, of course, when it first came out, I stole every copy of that. <laughs> and, uh, Zach later on in the 60s. But aside from that, really not any comics at all. Um, so somebody, somebody, I, I guess I was around uh, in my mid-50s, and some editor suggested that I look at graphic novels and try one, and I thought, no, no, I, that's too many little pictures, I'm going to do that. And... Um, and yet all the while I had this story that I wanted to tell, which I assumed was going to be a long prose piece based on one, the one thing I could remember from my childhood, which was a, a kind of a scary scene in a set in the hospital where my dad worked after hours, um, sock skating in an empty hallway and seeing these 12 little jars lined up in a display case in the hallway with these the stages of the human fetus in them and not knowing what I was looking at it just scared the bejesus out of me and that's all I could remember um, but I thought it was going to be the basis of something not a memoir but a story maybe anyway um, I was at a time in my life at that point when 
I wanted to express myself in some other way than children's picture books because I was, um, as I said, I was in my mid-50s and having passed a um, nearly a half century, or really literally a half century of life, I still found myself having very disturbing dreams and anxieties that I couldn't quite put my finger on uh, for the root of them. And I, what I wanted more than anything was to go back into psychoanalysis. I'd had a really wonderful experience for about 15 years when I was a teenager with a great doctor. And I wanted that kind of focus on me and my thoughts. And I, but I, I uh, where we live out here on a prairie uh, in Michigan, we're like hundreds of miles away from any responsible psychiatric care. And I realized that I was going to have to do it myself. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I, I knew that I could imitate what my doctor had done with me, just being quiet and watching and listening to what I was dreaming and thinking about and, and being patient with myself and trying to work it out that way. So at the same time, Sarah and I were over in Paris for a week in the middle of the winter one year. And I met this young Frenchman who was working on a graphic novel. And we visited his apartment, and I looked over his shoulder at his drawing board, and I, and I thought to myself, yeah, I'll never do one of those. Too many little pictures. But this guy knew my style, and he turned to his library shelves and started taking books out and handing them to me by these French graphic artists, um, and one Italian guy named GP. Yep. And then, you know, GP, yeah. Yeah. And, and great, great art. Um, good stories, too, from that guy. Yeah. Um, and some other, and some French guys, like Blutch and um, Nicolas de Crecy and Sylvain Chaumet. And I, even though I couldn't really understand the stories, I could understand the, the stories through the visual storytelling. And I recognized in these guys with their tremendous drawing abilities, um, a band of brothers, because not only could they draw well, but they had been influenced by the same kind of films that had influenced me and still continue to influence me films from the late 60s when the films of Bergman and Fellini and uh, Antonio started coming over from Europe and taught me taught me that he, you know visual storytelling didn't need a lot of pyrotechnics that a lot of suspense could be built with very simple means uh, Hitchcock of course is the master um and I learned so much from him, as did all those other guys I mentioned, uh, about visual storytelling. Um, which, is, I won't say that it's been lost, but it's it's rarely found nowadays, the kind of subtlety that he was capable of. Um, like an economy of images, in a way? like 
Economy of yeah, economy of images, and also he never did it. Here's I guess here's the real point. He never did anything fancy with his camera unless it had an editorial reason for it. You know, when he swoops the camera up to the sky, like in the birds, and looks down on the on the exploding gasoline station scene, for example. There's a reason for it. It's like suddenly we have this God's eye view of humanity scrambling around in this little catastrophe on the ground, uh, which we're, when we're in the middle of it uh, seems, you know, so apocalyptic. But from the view of the birds, it's, uh, it's a different thing altogether. There's a kind of a, you know, he's talking about the indifference of nature. And nowadays, the camera in these movies that you see at the cineplex it's up on the ceiling it's down on the floor looking up people's noses it's swirling around them 360 degrees and it's all there's no editorial reason for it there's the only reason for it is to keep you awake because basically what you're seeing is something you've seen 90 times before and you know the stories are crap and uh, the camera's just moving to keep you to keep you interested so, yeah, economy of means mm-hmm. and and uh, clarity. It's it's interesting that you mentioned GP because I I didn't I wouldn't have thought of that. But also after you mentioned that, um, both of you are kind of working in the same way of like kind of understanding adolescence and mm. trying to like come to terms with it. Yeah, yeah, Garage Band. Uh, notes on a war story. I like that one a lot. Yeah, a, you're right. It's all adolescent kids, boys. Yeah. He has a new one that came out earlier this year. Um, that's really oh. fascinating because it's done in a kind of much more sparse style, where it's more just simple black and white lines, and it's it's a longer story too. Um, What's it called? Oh God, I can't remember the name. Um, but it it did come out this year in English. And uh, from Fanographics. Oh, good. Um, oh, good. Yeah. yeah. But with, with you, so with your work, um, how did uh, after seeing the, this different European work, um, kind of bring out the, this other stuff within stitches? Um, I think I, I immediately recognized that uh, the graphic novel form is. Um, sort of infinitely expansive, uh, unlike the picture book form, which is generally limited to 32 pages or 40 pages or 46 at the most. That's um, a 48 account number. Um, that's that's the limit in a, yeah. you know, a kid's picture book. But here was a chance to expand on a story, to really dig in deep to characters. And I thought... Uh, you know, just draw out that scene in the hospital that I remembered and see what comes of it. But what came of it was a whole flood of memories because I think I'm basically, a, I know I'm basically a, a visual thinker. And, the, and the, the pictures that I was putting down of myself in that situation brought back memories of other people, of my family, of other settings, the house I grew up in, the car we used to drive, the, the 
the landscape, the urban landscape of Detroit. Um, and all of this stuff started coming back to me and I started drawing it like mad in panel form. And I um, showed this stuff to my agent, who, who was also my, my best editor at that time. And she, uh, she was just really wildly enthusiastic about it. So I just kept going with it. And what I found was, um, as soon as I could draw my family, my mother especially, she came back into my life in a very visceral way. And, um, and my whole relationship with her came back. And I, when I could feel this kind of dark aura of anger and resentment around that woman, uh, I began becoming afraid the way that I was as a kid. And, um, it, it, it really, it really became the catalyst for making this book. I thought, you know, this is the way I'm gonna, if it's generating these kinds of feelings and this kind of, this, this kind of bringing back that reality to me, that this, this is what I should do as a, as a book. I should, I should do it this way. Yeah. I should draw it. Yeah. So to me, like, there's a couple things I think about with, with, with this work, especially the first is like, it definitely feels like there's a kind of catharsis for you. Um, but the other is there's a, for, a sense of forgiveness. Um, mm. And that kind of comes through with your other work as well. And I'm wondering about how that, that kind of different parts of that processing work for yourself within within the creation, or is that kind of a secondary after? I think it was a secondary effect because I was really, I was really pissed off at my family when I started this book. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and it was, it was sort of, which was sort of the start of the psychoanalytic process when I was 14 or 15. Um, was to feel, to let out that anger um, and all that resentment. It was, it, it was really the, you know, the, it was step one. Uh, and I can't say that in 15 years, by the time I quit, when I was around 22 or 23, when, when, I, when the doctor let me go, I, um, I can't say that I had reached any kind of forgiveness at that age. And maybe it wasn't even... I wasn't ready for it, or maybe it wasn't even healthy at that time. But a better thing to keep the resentment going, just to gain my independence from them. But uh, making this book, yes, yes, came along with a sense of forgiveness, but not the kind of current, uh, kind of blanket forgiveness of everybody you've ever known that I hear people, you know, Putting forth it, uh, that that that's a kind of meaningless operation, in my opinion. I, I I think the only the only real forgiveness comes when you understand somebody as a human being, and that doesn't mean you're going to forgive what they did because some things are just unforgivable and permanently damaging. But to understand them as humans, to understand that they may not have even been aware of what they were doing is is a kind of forgiveness that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
So even though I don't miss my mother, for example, or my dad, particularly, I uh, and don't care if I ever run into them or anybody like them again. I I uh, I understand them much better now, and I just feel like I, I feel the way many people must feel. You know, like I was an alien kid born into the wrong family. And yeah, it was just a matter of chance, really. The, there's a lot. I think that there's some kind of universal resonance with some of that, um, where it's like parents, you expect them to kind of do everything they can for mm-hmm. you for bringing you into this world. And yeah. when they fail completely, um, how do you evolve that? And how do you kind of move on for that? And it's, it's not easy for anyone. It's, no, 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 it's not. My doctor once said to me, he said, David, any, any boy, and he meant any child, with a mother who didn't love him grows up with a hole in his heart and I think he must have told me that pretty far into the psychoanalytic process Uh, I remember even at 17 or 18 when he said it to me it was sort of hard to hear because uh, but you know the analysts good ones don't ever talk about a cure they just talk about a remission in the depressions and I stayed in touch with him for his whole life. He just died a couple of years ago in his 80s. And uh, um, he said I was as close to being a cured patient of his as anything he'd ever seen. Um, and uh, and that's nice. But he's right. Hole in the heart. I got one. It's just something you got to deal with. Now... Looking at your work, is this somewhere you tried to avoid going for a long time, like going to this dark place? Because uh, when I look at your picture books, there's a lot of joy, a lot of color, a lot of life, and with mm. Stitches, and with the other book, um, with Home After Dark, I mean, I mean, Home After Dark is in the title, um, but yeah. the, these are dark works. I mean, these are, you know, there's a, 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 a visceralness that's not graphic, but a kind of internal visceralness. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think it's in. Uh, to answer your first question, I, I think it's natural for somebody who's been through the kind of trauma I was I went through as a kid to go through a period of amnesia. Um, and I think the fact that I started writing these kinds of stories when I was in my 50s makes a lot of sense too because um, I don't know where I heard it or read it but somebody somewhere I just learned that mid 50s are generally the time when memories of trauma come out fully which I think it was made that statement or that study was pointed out during the recent Supreme Court hearings here in our country when this woman came out against the future judge with her memories of something that he had done to her when she was in her teens. And she just got this load of criticism from Trump and other people saying, well, why didn't you go to the police immediately? That's what any responsible person would have done, which 
uh, is a ridiculous argument. Yeah. Um, she was 15, for God's sakes, and uh, in a different era. And uh, anyway, so she's 50 now, or a little little more than that, and it makes sense that those memories have come, come back in a way that she can deal with and wanted to talk about. So that's that's what allowed those stories. And yeah, you're right, they're different from my kids' books, but there's also an element in all of the all of the kids' books that I've written and the ones that I've chosen to illustrate that have that do have they do share something with these novels. Uh, not not the darkness, but a, a degree of reality. Yeah. Um that maybe is uncommon in most picture books for kids. I mean, I'm just talking about stuff like, you know, cityscapes with the sky full of utility wires and cars and stuff that, you know, most people leave out in trying to make a more idealized world for children. Does that make sense? No, it does. Um, there's a reality in there. Um, mm-hmm. Like a groundedness, I guess, in a way. Oh, thank you. I like that one. Goes with the utility wires, too. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, now, Stitches, um, I'm interested in, within the process, because you talk about you know, kind of memories flooding back, and um, did the book kind of come together in pieces? Like, or very much you, so. Um, did you have parts done, and kind of it eventually just kind of like a jigsaw kind of snaps together at a certain point? <laughs> I wish I could say it was that easy. <laughs> uh, um, I I, re- I recall very well. The day that my agent, Holly, called me up from New York and said, this is about five months after I had been drawing my memories and flooding her desk with copies. And she called me up and she said, David, honey, I love everything you're doing and I don't want you to stop. But, sweetheart, I've got to tell you, I've got to remind you, books have chapters if books have, you know, organization, just devices that help a reader understand what's going on. And I really think it's time that you start thinking about that. And I remember exploding at her, just saying, wait a minute, this is my life. These are my memories. They're not coming back in any chronological order. Um, I'm not even sure that a lot of this belongs in a book. And she said, well, that's, that's what you've got to decide. You've got to start organizing and culling, which the whole idea of culling seemed like a cheat because, you know, my my main aim in my own self-analysis, if that's what the book was to begin with, and it was very much an act of uh, bibliotherapy, but uh, it went against me. It went against my principles almost to leave anything out. Yeah. Um, so... But she was right, and I knew she was right, and it was like the last thing I wanted to do. But, you know, I actually began with a college outline, which I hate college outlines, but uh, it did sort of get me thinking about hierarchies of events and, um, 
And it got me on the road to eventually um, getting this thing into shape, readable shape. One of the one of the things that um, my other editor, my my really good editor over at Norton, Bob Wilde, told me was he's a big opera fan, and he said, David, you really you've already got some really great light motifs going on in this book, and I think you should continue them. And I asked him for a definition of that word, and he explained, like from opera, you know, when the heroine comes on, she's got a theme, a musical theme playing in the background, and whenever that theme comes on, even if she's not on stage, we remember her. And I remember he, he used uh, the the theme of smoke it runs throughout my book. Uh, smoke from my dad's pipe, mainly, and blowing smoke, uh, figuratively. Um, that that got me thinking in a really good way, because that was straight, you know, that wasn't a college outline, it was straight from the arts. And I think there's a musical quality to my book, too. Uh, Maybe not operatic, but uh, definitely musical. A musical lines. Yeah, rhythms. <clears throat> now, I want to kind of bridge over to Home After Dark and kind of how yeah. that functions for you in a different way where, um, like you said, like Stitches is really a therapy session turned into a graphic novel. Um, mm -hmm. And Home After Dark being... Uh, a fiction-based work and kind of how that functions for you um, and kind of lead into doing that? Um, well, first of all, let me say the majority of the books that I've made, the 40 books that I had made up to that point, uh, were other people's stories. I've done six picture books that I wrote, and my wife has done six, some of the best of them that I've illustrated. But uh, feeling sort of limited in the number of ideas that I have for books, I wanted to continue working. I've um, uh, searched for and found a lot of good stories by other people, and it's sort of become a habit. Um, and so I was down in Mexico one winter a while back. Um, we, Sarah and I have gone down there every winter for about 25 years to the same town. And I've got a buddy down there named Mike, who is a very different kind of person from me, but also an artist. He paints. And um, he uh, he's a great uh, raconteur. And ever since I lost my voice in a surgery at 14, I've picked my friends for their ability to talk and their wit and their intelligence and uh, um, and also not minding if I sit there drawing in my notebook while they talk. Uh, and so Mike, for some reason, one day at coffee in the morning was telling me these stories from his youth back in Marin County, California, back in the 50s when Marin was not what it is today, a, you know, hyper built up kind of community, but... Uh, very fashionable, but uh, basically a, a marshland, very rural. And he told me in particular about this one bucolic summer that he spent with two buddies of his building a treehouse in the forest and doing guy things up there, kind of using it 
they were like kind of a unit, you know, like a a military unit with a tree fort as their base. And there they smoked their first cigarettes and got drunk for the first time and played games in this junk-filled gully and made forays every week down to the soda joint on the highway. And to me, all of this had a kind of wonderful, legendary kind of boyhood, Huck Finn kind of quality. Um, Like, I wanted to be that kind of kid. I wish that I had had that kind of free and easy summer, at least with friends, free of parental influence, because it was also very different from my kind of strangled, censored adolescence back in Detroit at the same time. And so um, I listened with a kind of envy to what he was talking about. But but when he, um, he brought up this little psychopath that used to live in his town, this kid who used to uh, enjoy murdering small animals in really gruesome ways. That's when my ears perked up. And I started thinking about this bucolic summer interrupted by this, these kind of gruesome events um, in, a, in a different way. Uh, and especially when the kid, this loner kid, who was obviously a sociopath, uh, started hanging around Mike's group and wanting to get in, and they caught him one day alone and beat the crap out of him. That was basically the end of Mike's stories, except for the fact that he had wondered for the rest of his life if they had done a good thing, if it had changed this kid, probably not. Um, if he'd ever run into him again, you know, God forbid. And what would happen to him eventually? Uh, this is one that started to sound like a good story to me. It's one that I could get into. And um, so with Mike's permission and encouragement, I started making drawings. And eventually I had an outline of a story that I sent to New York. And my editor and my agent were very enthusiastic about it. And then a contract came along and I was off to the races with this book. Um but after about three months, um, I couldn't tell what quite was wrong. What was wrong until my agent again said, "I think the problem is that you're trying to imitate someone else's voice, and it doesn't sound authentic." And she was absolutely right because, as I said, Mike is a very different character from me, and with a totally different outlook on life, and. Uh, and I was trying to imitate it, and I was failing. And so, after going into a kind of a slump for a couple of months, uh, I finally started putting myself into the book. And I changed the character of the main, the protagonist, Russell. He, he was no longer Mike, even though he looked like Mike as a 13-year-old. But he... Uh, he uh, I, it became me. It became a much more watchful, quiet, wary, insecure kid trying to find his way to be a man without any, just like me, uh, without any good examples of one. Yeah. And make, making mistakes, um, you know, doing just about anything to fit in with his peer group, but getting in trouble for that kind of behavior. Um 
I mean, Russell does, you know, for the sake of belonging with his peers, he really makes a dreadful mistake that uh, has consequences that uh, are pretty hard to find expiation for. So the more I put myself in the book, the better it got, the quicker it got better and the better it continued to be. But I have to tell you, I went through 12 complete revisions of this book. Jesus. Yeah. And if you know anything about making graphic novels, you know it's not just a matter of uh, <laughs> cut and paste. <laughs> it's like all the dominoes fall down when you take out a major character. And uh, toward the end, when I had already done 10 versions, I took out three major characters and changed several major incidents. Uh and one of the characters I took out was the little psycho kid because I realized that his his uh, gruesome story was overtaking the book and it was taking away from what I then knew was the main focus of my of my real story which was the inner development of Russell which I knew was going to be much much harder to illustrate but that I had to do it if the book was going to have any real verisimilitude. So uh, I took out Benny, the, the kid, but I left. I left the animal murders, but now done anonymously, they become uh, they they're pushed into the background, but they're done by they're done by an anonymous killer, and they become a kind of a metaphor for the toxic masculinity that's going on in my group of boys. Um, very much the same way 10 years later, in reality, 10 years after my book takes place, in the mid-60s, the Sharon Tate murders in Los Angeles would become a kind of national nightmare for a uh, for a whole generation that had made a burst for freedom and gone off the rails severely. Just the same way school shootings in America are a national nightmare for something rotten in our culture that nobody knows how to fix. Is there an idea in there of, like, all of us are flawed, but it's finding a way to kind of work through these flaws to kind of communicate with each other? Oh, yes, I think so. Yeah, and I think... I think um, I talked to one reader who was a little bothered by Russell being a kind of being so hard to pin down as a as a as a character. Oh well, it wasn't that he liked it, didn't like him. It was just that he didn't understand him very well. I think he wanted more resolution or more definite things to point at. But like you said, he's a character who's very flawed. And he's 13, for God's sakes. He's, you know, he's, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what he wants to be. He's, uh, he's confused. And I think what bothered this reader maybe is that the story is told subjectively from his point of view with all those confusions intact. Um, I could have chosen to tell it from a future the point of view of a future Russell, an older Russell. And I did try that for a while, but I realized it was much better to put readers in the 
mind and in the dreams and in the experiences of this 13 year old kid that that was the that was the way to go and uh so actually the more i talked to this guy who had these hesitations about the he liked the book but he had hesitations about russell but the more we talked about him the more he really did understand him you know the more he thought about it he thought you know he found instances that led him to understand russell as a human being much much better and sometimes we don't want to identify with that part within ourselves. Yeah, the mistake-making part. If, yeah. I, if I think of my own adolescence, my own mistakes, I'm sure. <laughs> that would be pretty voluminous. You'd find some things to writhe about there, would you? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure I have something for the last year that I could writhe about for a while. But um, <laughs> Send it to me. We'll make it into a novel. <laughs> We'll lay it all out naked for the world to see. (laughs) Um, No, I really, I did really, I I liked the way that Home After Art kind of worked. Um, And the balance of stitches of really like pushing into a different direction, but also kind of really um, touching on... And you mentioned that, like, that kind of toxic masculinity and um, at the same time, like, not really having these examples of what it means to be a young man and kind of you have to figure it out for yourself. And yeah. it's it's complex. It's, you know, there and now more than ever, you, you, you're fed so many different examples and so many dangerous examples, especially yeah. in American culture. Sorry to subject that onto you. Um, but no, no, I agree. And at least a third of our culture has chosen to put a supreme example of toxic masculinity in the highest office in the land and held him up as their example of how to be. It's really revolting, worrisome. It's put us in a very, very strange position, altered history in a way. Yeah. But I think it's going to be hard to repair. I have, I, I do have hope for the future as I see folks organizing and, you know. Yeah, especially after the last election. Still, you know, who's going to go up against this guy? Ugh, okay, who, we're, who, we're derailing. Like, yeah, we're derailing. Let's, yeah. I mean, we are talking about middle school. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and for you know we were talking earlier about the forgiveness and the forgiveness is important in here um, in a way of like maybe not forgiving too quickly like take that time to like kind of understand the situation and complexity of the situation and kind of like let that guilt do its job absolutely that's a that's a wise thing you just said, young man. Yeah. The amnesia might be a necessary part of the healing, but once the memories come back, it's really, really important to look at them fully and squarely and, uh, and admit what happened. You know, um, I remember being on tour in Germany with Stitches, and 
saying exactly that to my audiences and uh, looking out over a sea of blank faces. <laughs> <laughs> and not, not, not entirely blank. There was some real anxiety and disapproval in the faces out there, which made me shut up and not say that too many times in too many appearances. Uh, you know, who am I to tell Germans what to think or how to input? And they seem to have done a great job as a, you know, young, young culture, younger culture now in facing their past. But there's very much, there's a parallel there. Again, we're derailing, but, uh, um, I, I feel like I, uh, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to talk about my youth as a Holocaust for God's sake. It's, it's so hard. Um, there's a complexity now of an artist and even like, so I, I do this podcast. I've interviewed endless amount of cartoonists, probably over 700 at this point. Um, but after the election, I actually took a break because it was hard for folks to be able to talk about art in this context of how, how do you work within this and how do you kind of come through, um, and I think about this with, with, with Home After Dark. Like, I'm presuming you worked on it for a number of years, but there is something yeah. there as far as, like, you know, this, like, how do you handle um, this kind of worst part of ourselves, um, this base nature of of being, like, the, the passive observer, or um, it's that thing where, like, someone's calling for help and you expect someone else to uh, answer. Um that's the yeah. right analogy. I, um, well, this is the kind of stuff that keeps me awake at night. Uh, you know, when I was writing those scenes in Home After Dark, I remembered my own adolescence and I remember trying desperately to fit in with a clique of kids and doing and saying things that definitely excluded uh, what. I guess we all felt were less worthy kids. And, you know, I look upon that now with shame. And and like I said, the, that it's the same sort of thing that keeps me tossing and turning sometimes. Uh, what did I say? You know, did I really mean that? Did it hurt somebody? Um, I don't know where that sense comes from in a kid born into a family where no values were communicated to him in particular, except maybe the, the value of a dollar in the, in the case of my mother. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the right and wrong seems to be inherent just in the human race. Although some people are lacking it totally, but, uh, but those among us who are not sociopaths seem to have it. And, and, uh, if we don't work on it, then, I guess it's possible to live an entire life without making any kind of contribution, small or large, to a better life for all. So, uh, I think that's a the good. Books, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I think you, that's a good kind of reflection on the work and a good kind of thing that comes out of doing, like coming out of the end of doing this book. I don't know what I'm it's very painful. Yeah. yeah, 
I got I got very sick after I made this book, I, and I I know it was from stress, but I went through about six months of just total uh, inertness creatively, creative, cre- creatively speaking. Yeah, yeah. I'm just sort of pulling up out of it now with the success of the book. <clears throat> it's uh, it's been encouraging, but uh, I just remember feeling completely depleted. Just because you put uh, so much of yourself into it. Yeah, and I didn't know whether that it was going to sell five copies. You know, I had no idea. Um, the uncertainty of that, and having spent four solid years on it. <clears throat> um, yeah, it was tough. But a learning experience, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I... I am pleased that you're through the fog. Um, <laughs> it is, it is, inter- you know, and and that, that was something I always think about um, is that difference of doing memoir and doing fiction and fiction, like memoir, you're processing things a different way than you are with, with fiction, it sounds like. And there's something I think about because uh, in the, in the time span of doing this podcast, um, I started doing it back in, 2005 the kind of the way the book industry has approached comics has changed quite a lot and there was more of a dependency on that memoir idea uh, yeah. as, as a sellable product um, but I feel like you can get just as much out of fiction um, it doesn't have to be this like I don't know I don't know what I'm saying <laughs> no 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 I know what you're saying you're yeah there there seems to be an obvious difference, but I think from what we've already talked about so far, it's pretty clear that uh, memoir personal experience became, for me at least, in this my first novel, very much a part of the of the process of telling the story. Um, I mean, I expected to have all kinds of freedom when I started a novel. You know, I could make this guy anything I want, but he turned out being very much like myself which meant a deep self-exploration, more psychoanalysis, as in, um, which felt good because um, it seemed like a logical next step, having, gone, having made stitches and explored my youth, my very early youth, to going, you know, to wander, to slog into the bog of my adolescence <laughs> and find out what was there. And I think that, that, the, that memory component that uh, is something that I hung on to throughout the whole making of the book to tell me if I was telling the truth or not. Um, you know, I had, had, by that time where I ejected three major characters and several major incidents, I had learned the difference between truth and fiction, and I chose truth. I chose to get rid of all the superficial stuff that made it a, you know, more kind of Hollywood story um, and go for the stuff that uh, made me choke up. Yeah. And and I knew that that, you know, that was the more, I keep saying verisimilitude, but that's what I was after. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. And I can't help but think that the very best Fiction books always have something of the author in them like that. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. 
Uh, and I was thinking, oh god, I had something I was totally like profound that came through while you're talking. Now it's jumped out of my head. Um, as as the process goes within conversation. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think like maybe the thing I was kind of going through is like you you approached stitches within that kind of therapeutic context of like working mm-hmm. through these things and that there is kind of like there there's a not necessarily a goal but you do have a kind of through line of like this and where with with this it's kind of the opposite where it's introducing new new challenges or new new thoughts on life um or kind of reapproaching that uh but there's yeah. also something else I was thinking about is part of like the adults you couldn't have because of it because of your illness um and how that kind of plays a role i mean i'm probably going way too deep with that no 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 it's interesting your questions are good um it's true i put myself in the middle of an adolescence i couldn't have and didn't have but i my character reacts to it exactly the way i would have had i been there I mean, this whole relationship between this kind of hero worship that Russell has for this this kid, you know, with the muscles in his arms and his sleeves rolled up to show them and his waterfall hairdo and his cockiness, uh, it turned out to be a total jerk and even something of a criminal. I, you know, that's the kind of guy I looked at with uh, envy in high school. Um that's the, that's the kind of guy I admired, wanted to be, and uh, never, you know, not that there was any ever the remotest possibility that I would be, but he was kind of a fantasy figure. And so that's what I'm saying. I put myself in that never had, never will be kind of position and saw how I would have reacted. And I think that's where the truth of that came out. Um... Yeah, that's a great, great observation there. And I was just about to say something else profound. It's just flowing out of my head. Oh, I, it's not so profound. I just remembered it. <laughs> With memoir, there's a there's a really great component that fiction doesn't have, which is you know the ending, you know? <laughs> which is a great boon. And uh, I didn't know how Home After Dark was going to end until I was about five pages away from it. Yeah. I had so many choices. You know, I could I could send him this way, I could send him that way, I could make him stay still. Um, but in a way, it's, did not, yeah. in a way it's not Sorry. done, too. It's, it's what, not what? It's, it, in some ways, the book's not done, either. No, no, it's it's got a very irresolute ending like life yeah it's not sewn up uh, you can you can take it anywhere you want exactly um no i really appreciate this and I, I, I really enjoyed it um i too yeah. yeah thank you david so much for taking the time i realize i've t- taken quite a lot of your time uh this morning no no it's been a joy really um once again, folks, I've been talking to David Small, and his latest book is Home After Dark, as well as most folks will probably be familiar with the previous work, Stitches. Um, thank you so much, David. 
Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it.